Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to CSIS. My name is Sarah Ladislaw. I direct the Energy and National Security Program here, and I want to welcome everybody to uh, today's presentation of the BP Energy Outlook. We're always thrilled to have uh, BP here as part of our Energy Outlook series. We try to host most of the major uh, energy outlooks because we think they're really helpful in what all of us are doing, both policymakers and uh, energy stakeholders, folks in the uh, private sector, in thinking about the long-term trends that are ultimately driving energy markets. And so we're very pleased uh, for all of you to be here today uh, and very, very pleased to have Spencer Dale, a chief economist at BP, back to present their latest outlook. And so I think you'll find it uh, really interesting and organized in a little bit of a different way today uh, in, with some scenario analysis. And so we'll let him do his presentation and then we'll have a bit of a discussion. Today's uh, event is on the record and being webcast, so when we do get to the question and answer uh, and discussion portion of this, we'll ask you to please wait for microphones and uh, so that everybody can participate in that conversation. Uh, so Spencer, without further ado, I'd like us to get started and thank you very much for coming back to CSIS. Thank you very much. I'm conscious, I, I move around a bit, so if I'm, I'm not mic'd up, so I will try and stay next to the, 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 the lectern, but if I start wandering around, you can't hear me. Um, we'll flag you. Flag and shout. <laughs> I'm not very good at standing still. Um, good morning, everyone. Thank you all uh, for uh, sparing the time to come to today's um, presentation. I, I, I lived and worked in D.C. for, for two years, between 2006 and 2008, in a in a previous life when I was a central banker and I worked at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors for, for two years under the, the new uh, ben, uh, ben Bernanke regime. I love DC. Um, so when I, as I'm going around and doing various trips, it's always a highlight when I know I'm spending a bit of time in DC. I, I, I left DC dragging, uh, screaming and kicking. And, and it's a real... And it's a real treat when I come back to CSIS, which I, um, at the risk of being uh, given favoritism, is one of my favourite think tanks. It always gets together some fantastic people and does really interesting work. So it's a real pleasure to be back here again. And thank you, Sarah, uh, for hosting me. Um, so there's a... So BP produces this energy outlook, and an obvious question is, so you're producing this outlook which looks ahead to global energy markets over the next 20 years. Why on earth are you doing this? Why on earth does BP spend this time and money producing a document um, like this? And, and the answer, the simple answer, the glib answer is, well, because even last year, when BP massively reduced its levels of investment, it still invested something like $17 billion. Um, it's only the oil and gas industry where you say billion and people don't frown and puzzle you. You've got the units wrong. <laughs> so enormous sums of investment in terms of long-term investments, which, which pay off over a 20, 30-year period. So you need to have some sort of view about the future. Now, we're not naive. We, we realise that we can't predict 20 years ahead. So any single point projection or forecast, of course, will be wrong. Um, so the... But for me, the point of forecasting isn't about being right or wrong. For me, the, idea, the point of forecasting is better understanding the nature of the uncertainty in which you're operating in. And so the key focus of what we're doing in terms of the energy outlook isn't trying to say this is what will happen. Um, it's centred around a, a, a sort of most likely path as a way of thinking of helping to, con uh, to, to focus your narrative. But then we spend quite a bit of time going, well, what if that happens? Or what if that happens? How, what, how would that change things to better understand the nature of the uncertainty? 
The other thing, if you're doing a forecast like this for, for 20 years every year, unless you're doing something quite odd or wrong, it doesn't change very much. So you think, well, why do it every year and if the contours stay broadly the same? And I think the answer to that is the broad contours of something like the outlook do stay the same. They don't change very dramatically. But the questions you want to ask about the future do change quite a lot year by year. And so the way I think about the energy outlook is not that the big, the big contours are changing, but you hold up a magnifying glass to different aspects of the contours um, one year relative to the other year because you want to ask different questions about the outlook. And so a lot of what we do, if you look at this year's outlook, we flag up different issues and different questions. We ask different questions about the future than we did uh, uh, last year, and I've no doubt we'll ask different questions um, next year. So that's why we do it. The, end, the next, so just one final question is, okay, I can understand why it's useful to you guys. Why do you publish it? If it's so useful um, to, um, to BP, why don't you just keep it in-house? And the answer to that is... Um, I know of no better discipline on, on anyone's thinking than to make your thinking public and external and hold it open to open, open scrutiny. I have the real sort of pleasure over the next few uh, weeks of going and, and presenting and talking about the outlook in many of the major capital cities around the world. Um, I have no doubt that people in, in those different places will be very keen to point out which bits of the analysis don't quite work, which bits are wrong. And you know what? That's the whole point. Um, we know what we think. Um, what we now need to do is work out which bits of that sounds okay and which bits needs to think about harder. And so why do we publish this? Because th that way we, we will get feedback, we'll find out what's right, what's wrong, and we'll go back at the end of this, learn, and, and try and do better next year. That's also code for saying, when I finish and we do, and do the Q&A, please lay into the, the document and tell me which bits you think are right. And you think, oh my gosh, but that doesn't sound right at all, because that's how we will learn. Uh, and that's why we're, we're doing this thing. So that's the, that's, that's the background about why we bothered to do this at all in the, in the first place. So let me see if this is going to work. Okay. Um, so um, let's set the scene by thinking about the, the economic um, outlook. Um, the so backdrop here is we expect global GDP uh, to grow on average by around 3.4% per annum um, over the outlook. Some of that is driven by population growth, but the vast majority of this is driven by productivity growth, shown by those yellow bars um, on the left. And so essentially this, this is a story of strong productivity growth, particularly in emerging markets, as levels of capital increase and you have the gradual adoption of best practice techniques from the, from the technological um, frontier. So underpinning this story is this sort of strong, uh, is a story of, of steady global economic growth led by increasing prosperity, where this increasing productivity leading to increasing incomes per head means something like two billion people, around a quarter of the world's population, is lifted out of low incomes into middle incomes. And, that, and it's, that, it's that increasing prosperity underpinning this economic growth which is critical for thinking about energy demand um, going forward. In terms of energy demand, that sort of burgeoning middle class means um, is, is what drives the growth of in, in, in energy demand over the next 20 years. So in our central case, we think global energy demand will grow by around um, 30%. Almost all of that growth in, in, in energy is coming from emerging markets. Plentiful supplies of energy enable 
this increasing growth in, in, in prosperity and wealth and, and living standards. So in that, in that sense, this increasing energy is a good news story. It's a corollary of, it's exactly related to the increasing prosperity and living standards we expect to see in the emerging, mar in, in the emerging markets which drive global growth over the next 20 years. In contrast, if you have a look at, the, if you look at energy demand within the developed world, within the OECD, which is in that sort of green, slightly, slightly murky uh, green uh, swathe uh, on the left there, that's essentially flat. So energy demand within the, within the developed world is flat to falling. All of this growth in, 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 in energy is coming from, from emerging um, markets. Um, if you look at the chart on the, the right, the growth in total energy demand, the pace of growth shown by that purple bar, is slowing uh, over the next 20 years relative to what we've seen in the past. Global GDP continued to grow pretty much in line with the last 20 years, but what we're seeing is increasing paces of declines in energy intensity, the amount of energy needed to produce um, each unit of GDP. Some of that is a sort of China story, as China continues to, its economy continues to adjust away from heavily, heavy energy intensive, energy intensive industrial growth towards um, sort of more service, consumer-based uh, growth, which is less energy intensive. But more broadly, this is just a, a function of increased worldwide wide attention on trying to use energy more efficiently. So global energy demand growing by around 30%, driven by these emerging economies. In terms of the fuels meeting that growth in, in energy, the fuel mix, we have a fuel mix gradually um, uh, decarbonising with non-fossil fuels providing around half of the increase in energy over the next 20 years. That's led by renewables, shown here in, in the orange uh, bars here, which is growing um, by, around, by over 7% a year. So renewable energy um, more, almost quadrupling over the next uh, 20 years. And that's a story of increasing competitiveness of both solar and wind power, which means both of those uh, renewable energies are increasingly able to compete against oil, against coal and gas in the power sector without the need for public subsidies or, or, or forms um, of support. Despite this strong growth in, in renewable energy, oil and gas together with coal, still provide a majority of the world's energy needs by the end of 2035, providing around just over three-quarters of the world's total energy um, um, at, at that, that point. Natural grass, shown here in red, grows more quickly than either oil or coal, and you can see um, on the chart in those shares on the right, overtaking coal to be the second most important fuel source by the end um, of the outlook. Oil demand continues to increase, but the pace of growth slows, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. The fuel which is sort of showing the sharpest break with the past is coal, where we expect coal to grow at less than a tenth of the rate seen over the last 20 years, so a sharp slowing in the, in, 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 in the pace of growth of coal, with coal consumption um, actually peaking, we think, in the mid-2020s. Uh, so we're seeing uh, the likelihood of, of, of coal, of coal um, uh, peaking um, in, over the, the next 20 years. And the big driver of this shifting fortunes of coal, this sharp slowdown and ultimate peaking of coal, is, is of course, uh, China. 
So within China, there's this combination of the sort of changing pace and pattern of growth, uh, of leading towards slower growth, less energy-intensive growth, together with this commitment to reduce the dependency on, on coal, means we're likely to see a, sh a sharp change in the pattern of coal consumption in China. If you look at the chart on the left here, China's coal consumption is in the blue. You saw the, these really rapid growth rates in the 90s and the, the noughties, where essentially coal fueled the industrialization of China. Those days are over. Um, and as a result of which, the growth of, China, uh, of Chinese coal consumption is likely to slow sharply and ultimately um, start um, to decline. As a result, the dependency of China on coal, shown here in the right-hand chart, declines from something around two-thirds today to less than 45% um, by the end um, of the outlook. China is enormously important um, uh, for, for global energy consumption. It counts for around a quarter of the world's total energy consumption. China's energy needs are changing, and as China's energy needs are, cha are changing, that that the shadow reverberates across many of the global energy trends mapped out in today's energy outlook. One other feature to sort of just highlight um, in terms of this overview is we, we, consider, we continue to think that the world will continue to electrify with the share of energy used for power continuing to grow, as you can see on the left-hand side. As a result, we think nearly two-thirds of the increase in energy over the next 20 years is likely to be absorbed within the power sector. And in the, in the energy outlook, we have a new sort of section which looks beyond 2035 and look at some of these, some, some longer-term horizons. And we think, if we just extrapolate this trend um, going forward, it, in the 10 or 15 years leading up to 2050, it's quite conceivable that more than 80% of the increase in, in, in energy over that period of time is likely to be used to power, uh, to, use to, 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 uh, to go into the power sector to, to produce electricity. So quite an, sort of quite a striking uh, result. So almost 80% of the total increases in new energy going into the power sector. So as a result, it seems to me that in future energy outlooks, we're going to be increased to end up devoting more and more space and attention to the importance of the power sector in determining the nature of the energy transition. Well, how the power sector evolves is going to have an enormous impact in terms of, global, in terms of energy, energy trends over the next uh, 20 years. So that's a really sort of quick overview of some of the key features of the, of the, of the market, of, of our, our outlook. Continued growth in energy demand driven by this increasing prosperity, this growing middle class. A shift, a sort of gradual, gradual sort of um, decarbonisation of the fuel mix. Strong growth in renewables, non-fossil fuels overall, providing half of the increase um, in, in overall primary energy, and, and um, the, 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 world, the economy continue to electrify. What I'm going to plan to do now is spend a little bit more time, first of all, thinking about the outlook for oil then some of the issues surrounding the outlook for gas, and then I'll try and bring all that together by thinking about what the implications that has for the outlook for carbon and, and, the, and, and the, the ability for us to achieve the goals set out um, in Paris in terms of the climate um, goals. In terms of oil, I, th I thought I would frame the discussion of oil 
around sort of two sort of key questions which I think um, are critical to, the, to oil over the next 20 years. In terms of demand, uh, to ask the question, how might electric cars and what I would call the broader mobility revolution um, affect oil demand over 20 years? And secondly, on the supply side, how might the combination of this slowing in oil demand together with the abundance of oil resources affect the behaviour of oil producers? So questions, some key questions on the demand side, then, then a key question on the supply side, which I think together um, have a sort of big impact in terms of how oil is likely to evolve over the next um, 20 years. So if we start on oil demand, and just with, a, with, some, with some context before we, we jump in, we, we project oil demand is, is likely to grow throughout, um, oil will continue to grow throughout the, the outlook, rising by around 15 million barrels a day over the next 20 years. For, so that's, for those of you who are not familiar with these sort of numbers, a market today which is around 95 million barrels a day, growing to around 110 over the next um, 20 years. Transport um, demand for oil accounts for around two-thirds of the increase in, in growth. That's shown here by the darker blue um, lines on the, on the right-hand side chart. But as you can see, the stimulus from transport, the impetus it does to growth, gradually declines over time. And a big story there, which I'll come back to, is increasing efficiency assumptions built into um, our, our, our outlook. So as a result, towards the end of the outlook, the primary source of growth um, for, 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 for oil stops being transport and, and instead is overtaken by the non-combusted use of oil. So the use of oil as a feedstock, particularly in the petrochemical sector, takes over as a primary source of growth for oil. If you just pause for a moment just to think about that point, because it's quite sort of a different point to, to, to how we think about oil in the past. So the, the suggestion here is that by, by the, the end of the outlook, by, by, the, by, the, by the 2030s, the primary driver of growth in oil demand won't be to power cars or trucks or planes or won't even be as a fuel source at all, but rather will be the use of fuel as an input to produce other types of goods, be them plastics or fabrics or so on. So quite a shift relative to how we thought about the growth of oil demand over the last um, 20 years. So that's a bit of background, and so what I'm going to think about now is that question about electric cars and, um, and um, mobility and the sort of broader mobility revolution. And just to provide some sort of context up front, as you look in the chart on the left here, we're looking, about car, we're looking at car demand, which is that bottom swathe of the chart. So car demand, uh, for, the demand for oil for cars in 2015 was around 19 million barrels a day. So around 20% of the, of the total oil demand market. That's the sort of magnitudes we're talking about. That's about 20% of total oil demand. That's the, the issue here. In terms, of, in terms of the carb market, we expect the, uh, the global car fleet to roughly double over the next 20 years. There's around 0.9 billion cars on the planet today. We expect that to roughly double to around 1.8 billion cars over the next 20 years. Why? Why on earth we got all those cars? It's that emerging middle class. As, as you get these two billion people lifted out of low incomes into middle incomes, they can first of all start to buy a motorbike. 
once they've bought a motorbike and, the, and, and their wealth continues to rise, they can start to buy their first motor car. Um, nearly all of the growth in the vehicle stock um, we have here is coming from outside the OECD in the developing world, where we think the number of cars in the developing world will triple over the next um, uh, 20 years. So how much of that will be um, driven by electric cars? Our best guess is we think the number of electric cars will increase from around 1 million cars today to around 100 million cars by 2035. That's extraordinary strong growth. So in terms of compounding growth rates, that's something like 25% growth a year. So enormous growth in electric vehicles over the next 20 years. But as you can see in that chart on the right here, the, in terms of the proportion of electric cars and that final, um, sorry, the chart on the left, um, and that final bar on the left, the electric cars still only counting for a relatively small proportion of the total vehicle stock by 2035, despite that enormous um, growth. What does all this mean for car demand and, and, um, and for oil demand uh, for cars going forward? So this chart just breaks down how we sort of built up our forecast for oil demand for cars over the next 20 years. And the way you read this chart is you start from the left and you gradually, go f you gradually work from left to right. So we start in 2015 with oil demand of around um, 19 um, million barrels. That doubling in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the global car fleet equates to roughly a doubling in the demand for car, car transport, um, for, for travelling by car. Which other things equal, if the demand for cars um, travel roughly doubles, you'd expect that to lead to a roughly doubling in the demand for oil, which is shown there in that, that green bar. But we think the overall growth in oil demand would be massively re, um, mitigated by huge improvements in vehicle efficiency, as essentially motor manufacturers keep, have to keep responding to ever-increasing vehicle efficiency standards, and that massively reduces the extent to which um, oil demand actually increases. The increase in electric cars also reduces um, the demand uh, for, for oil, um, but that increase, but the, the impact here is relatively small. So we think 100 million additional electric cars reduces um, oil demand by something like 1.2 million barrels a day. So overall, our overall picture is a story where oil demand rises from around 19 million barrels a day today and rise to, to 23 million barrels a day, a sort of 4 million barrels a day increase, around a quarter of the total increase we see in, in oil demand um, over the outlook. So the two general points um, from this is, one, how confident am I that electric vehicles will grow by 100 million cars over the next 20 years? The answer is, of course I'm not confident. It's a hugely impossible um, thing um, to predict. The, the amount of unknowns one has to try and predict when thinking about the growth of electric cars you know, is an enormous long list. So first of all, what will happen to vehicle efficiency standards? Will they carry on increasing? Because it's that tightening the vehicle efficiency standards which acts as a big prompt. How quickly will battery costs continue to come down? What sort of public subsidies and supports will we see for electric vehicles? What will happen to oil prices? That's quite important when to put into the mix. What will happen to the pace at which conventional cars can be improved in terms of their, vehicle, uh, in terms of their efficiency? And perhaps most important of all and most uncertain of all, how will consumers respond to this? Will consumers want an electric car because they like what it says about them and they think they're cool and that their responsibility to the environment? or they'd be so scared about range anxiety and second-hand market they're going to stay away from them. We don't know, 
Um, our best guess is 100 million feels a, a sensible sort of number. The point here, though, is when trying to scale that uncertainty. We don't know what the answer is, but well, what we're trying to scale the uncertainty. And what I got, the message I got from this chart, is the scale of the uncertainty here isn't that large. Suppose electric cars grow two or three times more quickly than we think. They go far more rapidly. So rather than going to 100 million, they go to 200 million or 300 million. The impact that means is rather than reducing oil demand by 1 million barrels a day, it reduces oil demand by 3 or 4 million barrels a day in a market which is growing by 15 million to 110. The punchline here is just to scale the numbers here. Even if you get a really, really rapid increase in electric vehicles, it just doesn't seem like it's a game changer for oil demand over the next 20 years, just in terms of the magnitudes. And I always say to people, um, we don't have, we clearly don't have, and we know we don't have a crystal ball when we produce um, uh, something like the energy outlook. But what we do have is an adding up machine just to give us a sense about orders of magnitudes and numbers. And so I didn't know what the answer to this is until we started doing this type of work. But the message from here is electric cars, um, even if they go very, very rapidly, don't look like they're a game changer, at least on their own, for oil demand over this period of time. The second thing I draw from this chart is the improvements in assumptions about vehicle efficiency, that, that 17 million barrels a day reduction in oil demand relative to counterfactual, is many, many, many times more important than electric cars. And I guess two, two points flow from that. The uncertainty around that, that, um, the, the profile for vehicle efficiency is, is really significant. If we get that wrong, you could make a big uh, mistake. Underpinning that 17 million barrels a day is, is an assumption that the pace of, of improvement in vehicle efficiency will be roughly double what we've seen over the last 20 years. So we, we expect governments, as they're trying to hit the targets uh, and their commitments to Paris, will increasingly tighten that pace of vehicle efficiency. If that fails to materialise, and say the, the vehicle efficiency just grew, improved roughly in line with what we've seen over the last um, 20 years, that size of that yellow um, bar would halve, or if, another, if you like, would increase oil demand by, by sort of roughly sort of five, six, seven, um, eight million barrels a day. So the uncertainty there is, is significant. The second thing, so more from a public policy perspective, is when we're trying to think about how we can reduce carbon emissions um, from, from the transport sector, Nearly all the many, many panels I sit on, every, all everybody wants to talk about is electric cars. The, the pot potency of the efficiency channel for trying to reduce oil demand and, carbon efficient, and, and improve carbon efficiency is far greater. And the intuition of this is, is pretty straightforward. Over the next 20 years, under almost any scenario, conventional cars are likely to account for the vast, vast majority of the vehicle fleet. So relatively small changes in vehicle efficiency of the conventional stock can have a really substantial impact. So it's worth thinking about that the potential role of, of vehicle efficiency there. So, that, um, so that's, that's viewing electric cars in isolation. But electric cars, I think about, are, are sort of just one part of a broader mobility revolution which could affect the car market and hence oil demand um, over the next um, 20 years. So when thinking about this broader vehicle, this broader mobility revolution, other than thinking, of other, uh, in addition to electric cars, I think there's at least three other things you need to, we need to think about. One is the growth of autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, 
And the reason why that matters is self-driving cars tend to be driven far more efficiently, and so that improvements in efficiency, other things equal, will mean um, it would reduce, um, tend to reduce the demand for oil. Car sharing, and what I mean by car sharing is rather than owning a car, um, we, just use a, a, we just use an Uber or, or, or a Lyft, and, uh, and, and so, so essentially rather than owning a car, we just share uh, cars. In itself... Car sharing has no implications for oil demand. I go to the grocery store, I get an Uber, I go to the grocery store and come back, then you get an Uber and you go to the grocery store and come back. We've still travelled as many miles, we just shared a car rather than um, uh, owned our own car. But the significance of car sharing is some cars are used far more intensely than others. (coughs) Now, if the cars which are used far more intensely tend to be the ones which have some of these new technologies. So if electric cars are used far more intensely than um, conventional cars, or if self-driving cars are used far more intensely, um, that, that acts to amplify the impact of that new technology, because essentially more miles are travelled in a new technology car and less miles are driven in a conventional car. So the think of car sharing is like an amplification mechanism because of that intensity story. And ride pooling is what I talk about when you look at your Uber app. There's a, there's a cheaper option on the left-hand side which says, not only going to have an Uber, I'm going to share that Uber with somebody else. We're actually going to reduce the number of individual uh, journeys by, by sharing cars. And, and that obviously reduces the miles driven and, um, and, um, and as a result reduces um, oil demand. So then we say, okay, here's the effects. How could they all play out? Let's peer into the future about how these technologies and behaviours may change. Now, at this point, we're clearly completely in the world of the unknown, and any sort of, sort of confidence and predictions um, um, have, to be, uh, have to be sort of taken with a, with a pinch of salt. What we do in the outlook, and I'm more than happy to get into it in the, in the Q&A session, we, we come up with two very stylized um, scenarios to start thinking through how these different implications may work out. Um, but those scenarios are very stylized just to help us think about broad orders of magnitudes and magnitudes and sort of how things interact with each other. And in the booklet at the back, we provide all the details of the calibrations of what we've done to produce those scenarios. And, and everything's sort of broadly linear. And so the encouragement is you, there's enough information in the booklet for you all to produce your own scenarios. So you don't have to go away and say, BP, or oh, they've just done a one which helps them or whatever. There's a, in the back, you can go away, produce your own scenarios. If, you've got a, if you find a good one, please send them in, um, and then that's where we will learn. Where, rather than going through all the detailed scenarios now, because it will take between now and, and Christmas to do, let me, the punchlines from where we've gotten our thinking so far, uh, with, the, with the big caveat of the, the so far. Sort of three, if you like. First, as I was just saying, rapid growth in electric vehicles on their own, even if it's far, far more rapid than we think, doesn't seem like it's going to be a sort of fundamental game changer for oil demand over the next uh, 20 years. It's just numbers aren't big enough. Secondly, if you have electric cars growing sort of like we expect them to, about 100 million, but you have a rapid adoption of all these other technologies, autonomous vehicles, car sharing and ride pooling, the numbers we look at in the, in the outlook again suggest that on its own is also not enough to have a significant impact on, on, on oil demand. And intuitively, part of the reason why is because 
All those efficiency gains will tend to reduce the demand for car travel, and if much of that car travel is happening in conventional or, or, or oil-based cars, that demand for car travel then offsets those effects, and so you don't get a big impact. However, if we end up with a world with really, really rapid growth in electric vehicles, two, 300, 400 million electric vehicles by 2035, combined with all these technologies focused around electric cars, so lots of autonomous vehicles only in electric cars, car sharing of electric cars, ride pooling, then those two things together can add up to, to more significant numbers. And the sort of significant numbers we, we are looking at is, is um, you know, it, oil demand continues to grow, but perhaps at half the rate that we think of in, in the base case. That's the sort of orders of, of magnitude. But as I say, the stylized scenarios we put in, in the document, I think, aren't to be taken literally about, well, what millions of barrels impact do you think this had? But it's a way of trying to think about how some of these things may interact with each other. It's our sort of first foray into trying to, to get our heads around some of these issues. So that's a... OK, so I'm going I'm to miss those because they get too complicated to explain. Um, that's the, the question in terms of electric cars and the broader mobility revolution. The second question I want to talk about on oil is how might this combination of slowing oil demand combined with abundance of resources um, affect the behavior of oil producers? And the sort of the key point here, or the key insight here, is there's just an abundance of oil. How do we think about an abundance of oil? How do I, why, why do I say that? How do I calibrate that? That, that multi-stacked um, bar on the left-hand side here gives you a measure, our estimates, of, what, uh, of a measure called technically recoverable oil resources. So what technically recoverable oil resources mean is if I look at oil resources which I know exist today, so I know they exist, and I know that the technology exists is based on and which can be recovered with today's technology. Um, so I know I'll find more oil tomorrow. I know I'll get better at getting that oil out the ground tomorrow. But just looking at oil I know today, which I can get out with today's technology, we think that equates to something like two and a half trillion barrels of oil. What do I do with two and a half trillion barrels of oil? How do I, th how do I think about that? How do I think about what that means? You look at the chart on the right. Two and a half million, uh, the bars on the right, two and a half uh, trillion barrels of oil is enough to meet the world's entire demand for oil out to 2050, twice over. So there's more than enough oil, which is technically recoverable today, to meet, to meet the world's entire cumulative demand for oil out to 2050, twice over. The significance of that, so that's an abundance of oil. And as a result of this, I think there's an increasingly likelihood that some recoverable barrels of oil will never be extracted. Why does that matter? Because I think that may have quite significant implications for oil producers. If you think about the oil market over the last 20 years, it's a really odd market. And it's a really odd market because it's characterized because existing in the same market at the same time are some producers um, uh, which can produce oil at a relatively low cost and some producers which can produce oil at sort of three or four times the cost. I don't know any other market, I struggle to think of any other market which is highly competitive, open, globalized, where over 10, 20 year periods of time, people that can produce a, go a cost good at three or four times higher than somebody else stay in that market. 
Normally, market forces compete out high-cost producers. That doesn't happen in your market. This is an observation. Why? Because those low-cost producers have, in essence, decided to ration the amount of oil they, they produce at any one time, with, with the view that an oil, a barrel of oil not produced um, today can always be produced tomorrow, and indeed may be able to be produced at a higher price um, tomorrow. In a world where some barrels of oil will never be extracted, the, 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 the attraction of that sort of rationing mechanism um, starts to become less compelling. At some, some point, somebody's oil is going to be left in the ground. If you're a low-cost producer, you do, why on earth should it be yours? Why are you allowing somebody who produces a lot higher barrels of oil to be able to um, produce today if that increases the risk that your barrels of oil may get um, stranded? As a result, what we've assumed in our forecast is that these low-cost producers, which are concentrated essentially around Middle East OPEC, Russia, and some parts of US tight oil, over a period of time start to use their comparative advantage to try to increase their market share, squeezing out some of the low-cost um, producers. The implications of this for the oil market relative to the last 20 years are quite significant in terms of the nature of the, the bargain, the, the composition of supply, some of those longer-run um, um, price trends. How likely is something like this to happen? If I can produce a chart like that on the left-hand side, so can many others. And I don't think if you went round and asked 10 people to produce a chart like this, they'd be uh, uh, out of line with, with other estimates. And so some movement in this direction seems likely to me because everybody else can do the similar sums to we can. How much and how quickly I think is far harder to know. It depends in part on some just some practical logistical issues. Even if you're a low-cost producer, how quickly um, can you increase your production levels over a 10 or 15-year period? That's quite that takes lots of investment, all sorts of lots of logistical challenges. So there's an issue about how quickly you can implement this type of strategy. A strategy like this also has, uh, which essentially equates to producing more oil but accepting a lower price, also has all sorts of implications for your fiscal positions and your, your, your real economy. So there's, there's issues to do with that, which also may limit the pace at which you do that. Moreover, if you're a high-cost producer, you may well want to compete um, and trying to maintain your market share by trying to change some of your tax and royalty regimes as well. And so how quickly this happens, I don't know. It may be what we've built in here is too much or too little, but some movement in this direction seems to me quite likely just because the mass shout at you that somehow um, this abundance of oil is likely to suggest that the current structure of behaviours doesn't seem a, a, a very sort of compelling one going forward. So two uncertainties uh, for, for the oil market, sort of the impact of electric cars and the mobility revolution, one sort of significant thing which is likely to affect the oil market over the next 20 years on the demand side, and on the supply side, how do producers respond to this growing abundance of oil resource and how quickly and how much. That's a story on, on uh, oil. Turn next to um, natural gas. Our projection is that natural gas grows pretty strongly by around 1.6 per year um, over the outlook. So that's far more strongly than either oil um, or coal, with the, with the gas share in primary energy steadily increasing over time. On the supply side, you can see in the chart on the left, around two thirds of that increase in gas is met by shale gas. 
led by US shale gas, which is expected to more than double um, over the next 20 years, and also supported by the emergence of China as a sizable gas producer. On the demand side, it's, um, um, gas demand is driven by increasing demand within the industrial and power sectors, with China, the Middle East, and the US the main centres of demand um, growth. A big feature of the gas market, which we flagged last year and we continue to flag because we think it's really important, is this enormous rapid growth we expect to see in liquefied natural gas, um, LNG. We expect liquefied natural gas, I think, roughly doubles over the next um, uh, 20 uh, years, growing far more rapidly than pipeline gas, and this is a significant issue here. So as a result of which, by, by, by the end of the outlook, um, we, we have liquefied natural gas accounting for more than half of total traded gas. You can see in the chart on the left, this growth of supply is driven by the US, in, in, shown in green, and Australia in, and in yellow. So that's on the supply side. And the main market for LNG um, is Asia, this growing demand for, for gas and gas imports um, within Asia. So what? Why does this uh, matter? It matters because LNG, unlike um, uh, pipeline gas, is mobile. It can be diverted to cross different markets um, in, in, in response to different fluctuations. As a result, this mobility of, of, of LNG and its ability to move across different parts of the world means we're likely to move to increasingly, globe, uh, to increasingly global, uh, globally integrated um, gas market. Suppose some shock blows up, causes prices to blow up in, in one part of the world. If most of the trade is based on pipeline gas, what happens to gas prices in other parts of the world, and what happens to that big blow-up in gas prices um, in this part of the world? Frankly, nothing. The pipeline gas can't be picked up and, and put somewhere else, and so pipeline gas into to this part of the world just carries on with prices largely unaffected, while prices over here spike right up. These markets are essentially segmented because I can't take the gas from a pipeline and start putting it somewhere else. LNG is completely different. If, this, if this, you get this big price blowout, cargoes start getting diverted from one part of the world um, to the other. If you go to BP's um, trading floor, we have this very cool app. You push this button, it's like a radar screen. And on this radar screen, you can see all the LNG vessels, where, where they are in the world, what they're containing, and what the arbitrage is if I stop and say, stop there, turn and turn around and go somewhere um, else. So in this world where we have this blowout, what happens? I start to divert these cargoes. As I divert these cargoes, prices on this side start to decline because price supply is moving in to that world. Prices on this side of the market start to rise because there's less supply. And we keep on doing that until prices come back um, into, into, um, into some sort of um, uh, equilibrium. We move to world to a globally integrated um, gas market. Um, in terms of, um, of, of supplies, so Australia and America were those key, key uh, sources um, of demand. Given its location, Australian <coughs> LNG is likely to, to predominantly go back within, within will, will predominantly feed that very large Asian market. That's a natural thing given where Australia um, is placed. In contrast, US LNG exports are likely to be far more diversified with US LNG exports, going, some going to Asia, some going to Europe, 
and some going to South and Central America. This diversity of US LNG export means as the market globally integrates, it seems to me quite likely that US gas prices are likely to act as an anchor for this globally integrated gas market because it's US LNG exporters who are actively arbitraging across different markets around the world. If you're in Australia next to the big market in Asia, you need quite a big shift in price differentials so for you to want to move your cargoes away from Asia and put them somewhere else. If you're in the US and you're already sending cargoes to all different parts of the world, you're actively doing that arbitrage relationship the whole time. As a result of which, I think it's quite natural for, 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 for US gas prices to act as an anchor in this increasingly globalised um, uh, gas market. The other sort of obvious observation to make here is, as you get this development of a deep and competitive um, LNG um, market, we're likely to see increasingly long-term gas co contracts, which are currently typically indexed in terms of oil prices, to gradually over time to be indexed in terms of spot gas prices rather than oil. So quite big changes we expect to see in global gas markets um, over the next 20 years, underpinned by this growth of LNG, and the special thing about LNG is its mobility relative to pipelines, breaking down that segmentation of gas markets we've seen um, up till now. The final thing I wanted to talk about was um, carbon emissions, and what all this means uh, for the goals set out in, in Paris. In terms of the outlook for carbon emissions, there's some good news and some bad news. The good news in terms of carbon emissions is a combination of in these accelerating declines in energy intensity, those green bars getting bigger I was telling you about earlier, combined with this sort of shift in the fuel mix towards a lower carbon intensity uh, fuel mix, means our, our expectation is that carbon, the carbon emissions will grow at roughly a third of the rate over the next 20 years compared to the last 20 years. So you can see in, the, in that black um, bar on the bottom, growth rate in the next 20 years of something like 0.6% per annum compared with over 2% over, over the last 20 years. So the implication here is the global economy can grow at roughly similar rates as it's grown over the past, but with carbon emissions growing at far less than they have done in the past, around a third of the rate. That's the good news. The bad news is carbon emissions are still rising. That sits in contrast with something like the IEA 450 scenario, which, for those who are not familiar with this, is used by more or less the whole industry as a sort of consensus uh, projection of what carbon emissions need to do if you have to have a good chance of achieving the two degrees ambition. And what the IEA uh, 450 scenario suggests is that carbon emissions don't, don't need to keep on rising, but rather they need to fall, and need to fall quite significantly of the order of 30% to have a good chance of achieving the, the Paris um, goals. And that widening um, gap highlights the need for more policy action. This widening gap between what we think is the most central, the most likely path for carbon emissions relative to what we need to see uh, be achieved to have a good chance of achieving those Paris goals. And when producing something like the energy outlook, the sort of the speed of transition to a lower carbon energy system is one of the biggest uncertainties um, we face. Will this gap um, be, be, be narrowed? If so, how quickly in what form is one of the key uncertainties we need to think about when producing the outlook. 
To try to get a, a handle on that uncertainty, we considered two um, alternative faster transition pathways. So two pathways which mean we suggest we're having a faster transition to a lower carbon uh, uh, energy system. The faster transition path shown here in, in green, we considered last year um, um, and, they, and, and we've updated it in, in, in this year's outlook. And that roughly um, gets you somewhere halfway between um, our base case and the 450 um, uh, scenario. This year, we've also produced an even faster uh, transition case, shown here in orange, where the profile of the carbon emissions in our even faster case are designed to match the IEA 450 scenario. So that's how we've gone about thinking about the even faster one, is to match the IEA um, 450 um, um, scenario. Now, I think it's fair to say we're getting to the limits of our modelling capabilities at this point to know exactly what policy levers we need to, to, to pull to achieve these outcomes. There are, there are people, there are far better, bigger organisations with far more sophisticated models than ours to know how uh, to, to think in detail how to achieve some of the, the, the policy implications to achieve these outcomes. In rough terms, some of these policy outcomes, we are pulling explicit policy levers. So, for example, carbon prices are, are increasing very rapidly in these two alternative cases relative to the base case. So, in the base case, we have carbon prices rising to around $40 uh, by the end of the outlook. In the faster transition case, it's like something like $100. And in the even faster case, it's closer to $200. And some of these is defined, defined in terms of outcomes without actually saying exactly what you need to do to achieve that. So, for example, in the faster transition case, we assume that actions are taken so that you have a penetration of 200 million electric cars rather than 100 million. And in the faster, even faster case, we go to 400 million electric cars. But we don't actually say what actual policy levers you need to do if you have to get that because that's um, sort of getting beyond um, our capabilities. One point to note here, and you can see on the right, is that the majority of the, abate, of the additional abatement in both faster transition car, uh, both the transition paths come from, from the, the power sector, shown in that sort of the big uh, row on the, on the top there. What does all this mean for the energy system and the implications for the energy system? So this chart compares the faster transition case, FT, and the even faster case, the EFT, with our base case in terms of both growth of energy and, and energy um, shares. Energy demand is still expected to grow um, in both of these scenarios, but at a slower rate, reflecting the policy measures to try to improve energy efficiency. Non-fossil fuels, shown by the blue bars here, provide all of the net increases in energy in both of these cases, led by really strong growth in renewables, so renewable um, growing very sharply in this period. As you can see, coal is falling sharply in both of these scenarios shown um, in, in black. Oil demand peaks in both of these um, scenarios, um, um, uh, uh, but, 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 still, but still grows ever so slightly in the faster transition case. But you can see, despite this strong growth in, 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 um, in, in non-fossil fuels, oil and gas, the world needs as much, roughly needs as much oil and gas combined in 2035 as it does today, even in the even faster transition case. 
So even in the even faster transition case, total consumption of oil and gas combined in 2035 is roughly equal to the current levels. So still significant need for, for, for oil and gas, with oil and gas providing around a half of the world's energy needs in 2035. In the outlook, what we do, and, we could, and it's in the book that, at the back for people to do, we then say, well, here's our attempt at doing some faster transition cases, but there are many different ways of thinking about the faster transition case. So there's a table in the book, which I won't try and bore you with now, which says, let's compare these two faster transition cases with, with, with a set of external forecasts which achieve similar re reductions in carbon emissions, and let's try and look at where there are similarities and where there are differences, because that may start to help us think about how to think about this story. And there are some similarities. M most of the, out of the external forecasts we look at show that the majority of the abatement happens in the power sector. If you're going to make big inroads, it's the power sector where you're going to really make significant inroads over the next um, 20 years. Most, not surprisingly, show very strong growth in renewable energy as part of the story here. Most show that oil and gas combined um, account for around half of the world's energy needs in 2035. That's pretty common across all of the outlooks. The main difference between these different scenarios is how much work is done by improving energy intensity, so using energy more efficiently, and how much work is done by, by, using, by, by fuel switching away from fossil fuels, away from highly carbon-intensive fuels, to lower carbon fuels. And that's where the, the main differences are. I guess the point I would make here is the uncertainty of how these technology and behaviours are likely to evolve and be developed over time means it's very hard to make any normative judgments about what the right path is or what the optimal path is. It's just so uncertain it's very hard um, to know. And that uncertainty is the reason why economists like me think carbon pricing is the right way of trying to tackle this issue. If you do it via carbon price, if you use a price mechanism, it provides an incentive for businesses, for markets and consumers to sort of seek, to seek out the efficient path as technologies and behaviours evolve. That's what the pricing mechanism gives you. If instead you rely on a regulation-based approach, that essentially requires the government and policymakers to guess the best path in advance and then to mandate that path via various rules and regulations. I've worked in policymaking circles for 20 years. It's really hard for governments and policymakers to pick winners and losers. I used to set interest rates for one month ahead and made all sorts of errors. Um, the idea that I can pick a transitional path for the next 20 or 30 years is extraordinarily difficult. That's what you're doing when you do it via regulation. <coughs> And that's why carbon pricing seems to me, and why in BP we still think there's a key role um, for carbon um, pricing. Changing tack, I just want to make one final point before um, um, I, I, I stop um, on a slightly different um, issue. The base case, in, in, the, in the outlook, one of the features here is this strong growth um, in, in gas. And if you... Um, if you ask most of the super majors about their views and about um, what, what they think is likely to happen, nearly all of them will, will line up and say, I think natural gas will grow strongly over the next 20 years. So clearly, if you have a job like mine, the great thing is saying, well, how could that be wrong? Um, and let me try and provoke uh, some questions about where, what's the vulnerability of that. We've just seen that one potential vulnerability 
is that climate policies uh, are tightened far more aggressively than we think is, is the most likely case, and as a result of which energy demand grows less quickly, but, um, but um, natural gas gets squeezed relative to, to um, renewables and other types of non-fossil fuels. So one threat to, to gas is that climate policies increase more rapidly than, than expected. But another possible threat is that climate policies increase less quickly than we expect. And the argument here is that some of the strength that we project for gas over the, in the central case relies on the assumption that government policies over a period of time around the world encouraging a, encourage a switch away from coal towards other lower carbon fuels, renewables, but also gas. What happens if that, if that tightening in carbon policies that we expect to happen fails um, to materialise? And that's what we look at in this sort of alternative um, case here, where in this alternative case, you, fight, you see far less coal to gas switching, and as a result of which, the share of gas, rather than rising steadily over the next um, 20 years, actually declines. Now, the policy measures needed to achieve this sort of result are pretty stark. They're, effectively, they, they equate to something like a, a zero carbon price, plus also a reduction in regula regulatory support, um, encouraging a switch from, from coal to gas. But they do highlight the more sort of generic point that when thinking about the risk to gas, you can see this on the right-hand chart, when thinking about the risk to gas, so the idea that gas will grow strongly over the next 20 years, one possible risk is that climate policies may be far stronger than we expect, but another possible risk is that climate policies may not tighten to the extent we think, and that, that could also um, be a threat to the growth of gas. Okay, let me stop and, and, and wrap up and then throw it open for questions. And then to remind you, remember why I'm here. I'm, I'm here to find out which bits are wrong so you can criticise it and, and help me um, learn. Global energy markets are in, are in a, a transition. Conventional developed markets are being overtaken by these emerging markets driven by this growing middle class which underpins global GDP growth. The fuel mix is gradually decarbonising with non-fossil fuels providing almost half of the growth um, of the increase in primary energy over the next 20 years. Oil markets are changing, demand side electric cars, mobility revolution, supply side, this changes in, in the uh, potential supply changes, uh, uh, changes in behaviour in response to the abundance of oil. Gas market, this emergence of an integrated um, global gas market anchored by, uh, my, some, my guess is, by US gas prices in one form or another. The outlook for carbon emissions improving, but not improving enough with the speed of transition, the speed and nature of the transition to a lower carbon energy system being a key unknown in terms of the, 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 the outlook going forward. So plenty of issues and uncertainties to keep the energy outlook in business for a few more years yet, <laughs> which means I can keep coming back to CSIF and, um, and to, to DC. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's great. As we all know, everyone in the geopolitical or energy business is keep the uncertainty going so we have some job security uh, for sure. I, I would just commend to everybody, you referenced a few times the extra materials that you go into in the outlook that helps flesh out some of these big questions you've bounded for everybody.
And I really think that they are worth taking a look at, because you're right. I mean, this question of low-cost consumer behavior in the wake of the, the recognition of oil abundance, the question of the trajectory of energy policy and climate policy and what that means for the gas future, and then this mobility revolution, all very helpful things to have bounded for everybody. We have about 20 minutes, and so I'm not going to stand in the way of trying to get some questions from the audience. I am going to throw mine in, though. Uh, it won't make you answer at first, though. I want to go back all the way to your premise, right? So you were in Washington after an election that surprised even the person elected. Uh, and so we're all sort of figuring out what that outlook looks like for energy policy and for a whole host of other policies. And so I would say most of the outlooks that we encounter, probably including this one, is predicated on a world in which we have uh, free trade flows. Uh, we have economic policy that believes that we benefit uh, globally in terms of GDP because we trade with one another. And that is a fundamental question we are grappling with in U.S. energy policy and U.S. trade policy right now. Um, we also have an administration that is not constrained uh, by a, uh, a climate target. Right, And so if you believed that whoever the next president of the United States was was going to have to be the source of greater ambition to reach those lower climate targets, uh, and that isn't coming from this, what are some of the drivers of your low-carbon outlook? What are the longer-term drivers if it's not necessarily U.S. federal government leadership? So I'm throwing them into the pile, but I'm going to take three more from the audience so we can get it going. Right here, please wait for the microphone. It's coming. And your name and affiliation and question in the form of a question, please. Thank you very much. My name is Anders Åsten. I'm from the Atlantic Council. I think this was an admirable uh, overview. And uh, the message that comes through very strongly is that energy is uh, abundant. And I was very struck that you are, uh, don't point to any significant uh, bottleneck. That's the first question. And the second question is that with this picture, energy prices are set to be very low for a long time. So I just ask for your confirmation on that. And of course, you pointed out that carbon emission will set to, to be high for a long time. And I very much like your idea that uh, this requires more uh, carbon pricing. And my question here is, isn't this very likely? with more carbon emission than desired and very low energy prices. Should that make it easier? Thank you. Adam Siegel, Insight Through Analysis. First, I'm just going to throw two things to think about that are not in the outlook right now, and then a question. Two are sort of the impacts, if you think about growth being in the manufacturer petrochemicals, but as additive manufacturing, and the potential of the synthetic fuels and the impacts in 20 years out. But the, the question might be is, if we go back 15 years in these sort of outlooks, we'd already be at roughly 100 30 million barrels per day of demand. Uh, if we look at the forecast 15 years ago, solar would still be at 20, 30 cents per kilowatt hour. As you look back to create the work looking forward, what are you finding the things that perhaps were most wrong or most difficult in previous forecasts, and how are you adapting that in your forecast looking forward? Yeah, Robert Kleinberg, Schlumberger. Um, first, a critical observation, then a, then a question. The critical observation is, is that uh, Department of Energy data shows that uh, ride-sharing has much poorer um, energy efficiency compared to 1.6 passengers per vehicle, private vehicle use. And I think the reason is, is that most of the um, energy in a ride-sharing system is used getting to the passenger and then sitting 
in cold weather and running your heater while you're waiting for the next fare. So if you look at the DOE numbers, uh, ride sharing is really very poor in energy efficiency. Um, the question is, you talked about um, uh, price on carbon, um, but you didn't say, I don't believe you said, whether it was a carbon tax or cap and trade. Exxon, your, your uh, colleagues at Exxon prefer carbon tax. Does BP have a position? I have a terrible uh, issue, problem that I always answer questions in a really long way. And um, so um, let me try and do this quick, um, otherwise I know I'll be... Let me... Uh, I'll drop around. Carbon tax versus cap and trade, um, as an economist, I think is second order. Um, there are some very sophisticated arguments. I'm more than happy to have a very sophisticated argument, but it's all to do with the source of uncertainty. To a first order approximation, they are the same. Uh, it's not... Um, there is a second-order approximation why they're not quite the same, but to a first-order approximation, they're the same. And I think far more importantly is you do carbon pricing rather than you do regulation. For some countries, cap-and-trade will work. For others, carbon uh, taxes will work. But the difference between the two economically are almost, is almost identical. They are, if, for those who are economists, they're the dual of each other. Uh, you can replicate one with the other one. Um, so it's, it's, it's relatively second-order. Um, the car-sharing point... Um, I buy that. The, the issue here is there's not many of these new technologies yet which really... De Remember, car sharing per se doesn't do very much. If car sharing is done by an electric car, which is um, far more efficient, or is it done by an autonomous vehicle car, that's when you get the, the action. Those don't really... They're not really there very much at the moment. And so that's why current data may not tell us so much about um, the future. Um, I... I done a talk with some press last week, and they said, what thing in, is not in this presentation? What, what, what's the outlier? What thing are you really thinking about could really change things? And I said, I think it's additive, additive manufacturing and 3D printing. So I, I'm 100% with you. And why is that? Why is that potentially important? If you think about if rather than having trade, we can print things, the whole nature of needing to shift goods from one part of the world to the other where there's low, low, where there's low cost labor or comparative advantage goes. The whole nature of supply chain, supply chain completely change. The implications that has for energy, I think, are potentially really significant. And I said this as a throwaway remark, and unfortunately, two or three newspapers picked it up. So now I'm pretty much committed we're going to yes. do something on this in the Energy Outlook next year. Um, you know what? I don't know how big it was. When I sat here last year, I said, I'm really going to do electric cars next year because I'm really worried about that. It turned out the more you pushed in it, I convinced myself it wasn't such a big deal. But uh, the man additive manufacturing 3D seems to be huge to me. Um, revisions analysis, yes. Yeah. So uh, I... I one of the things we've sort of developed in the book in the book over the last few years is to do more revisions analysis. Um, it seems to me that's a sort of basic best practice forecasting is how, how have you revised your forecast? What's the signal in that revision? How much is, is that, what's that telling you about the future? And try and learn. Um, when I started doing this, some of my bosses in BP were going, why on earth do you want to keep telling people how you got it wrong? And the point is, because that's how you learn. Um, what have we got most wrong over the last couple of years? It's renewables. Uh, we, um, we've revised that renewables significantly two years ago and revised that re renewables significantly again this year. And that caused quite a lot of soul-searching internally because, geez, we're not learning the lesson. Um, when I dig deeper into that and say, well, what, what are we learning about that? It turns out around half of that upward revision over the last two years is a China story. So what we've seen in China is essentially um, 
downward revisions in coal-fired power generation being far greater than we expect, and around half of that gap being, for, being filled by renewables. So the story here, this is less a, an error or a, a mistake in terms of just a general competitive as renewables, and it's more to do with the speed of transition um, of, of energy within China. So that's the sort of the nub of the, the underlying error there is the speed of energy transition in China rather than renewables per se. But we, are, we ask ourselves a lot this stuff and we try and there's some sort of section on revisions analysis trying to learn um, from um, that. Um, is carbon pricing likely? Um, I think, so that's a political question. Um, I, I make this observation. In terms of the many challenges economists and economic policymakers facing, face around the world, making a carbon pricing system work is not that difficult. Right? It's not beyond the wit of policymakers to make a carbon pricing system work, be it via a carbon tax or be it via cap and trade. And so if you fail to see a carbon pricing system work, it's not because it's really difficult. It tells you something about political will. Um, do we building lots of significant bottlenecks um, into this outlook? Um, no. So the assumption here, which is what you do over a 20-year period, you assume the bottlenecks um, evolve, uh, are sorted out, and so they don't act as a significant uh, issue. You suggested this, sort of the, this abundance of energy means prices stay low for a very long time. I, I, I worry a little bit about that type of formulation of that language, because that somehow suggests that the current prices are an equilibrium price, and, a st and, and, we should just, and I, my own view is that doesn't seem sensible to me. If I, look at, if I look at the oil market, I think see current prices, that does not seem very sustainable to me. I, in, th in that world, I'd see demand outstripping supply growth for, for quite a, a long period of time. So um, I don't think we should just extrapolate from now. I don't think what we're in now is the beginning of this. Um, we haven't seen this abundance play out yet. But does it mean that, um, that prices are likely to grow by less than otherwise would have been the case, which is a really unhelpful statement. I agree with that statement. But how much less and where that means they settle down, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's the far harder question to answer. Um, climate and, and the US role. Um, in terms of the outlook, the, the vast majority of the, of the improvements in that carbon outlook and that sort of reducing by a third to, to a third of the rate of the past much of that is happening outside the US so this is not driven by US policies and moreover if I look at the improvements in the US much of what's happening in the US the majority of that was driven by improvements in energy efficiency not by fuel switching and I presume much of those improvements for energy efficiency are good business so in an economy where you're trying to promote jobs and growth, and you're trying to improve self-sufficiency, I would imagine energy efficiency still remains quite important. Mm -hmm. I think the significance here is that if I look from my vantage point, which is, not a, a, which is somewhat removed from the detail, is it seems to me that the US has played a, an enormously important international role or global leadership role over the last four or five years, together with China in galvanizing the international community to take climate seriously, bringing them to the table in, 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 in Paris and agreeing that agreement and following it through. And so I think the significance here is if somehow, for some reason, the US stopped playing that leadership role and that affected international, the international commitment, that's 
where the issue could be significant. Whether that will happen or not, um, uh, you know, I have no comparative, uh, look, uh, comparative advantage. But it seems to me it's the international sphere and the role that the US plays in the international sphere, rather than domestic policies per se, where the big action is. We're going to try one more round because you're quite I, well I, doing this. Is that, was that better, better than normal? Yeah, yeah. So, when Sarah says you've done it quite well, that's when, like, when somebody, you have your mother telling you off saying, yeah, well, you're not as bad as normal. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jan, and then we'll go to Jamie. And then we'll go back. Here we go. All right, I'm Jan Mayer's Resources for the Future. In quickly skimming your book, I see no reference to uh, CCS. And I see only a paragraph talking about technology. Do you assume there'll be any inventions in technology over the next 40 years? Or do you just assume business as usual? Uh, Jamie Webster with uh, Columbia and with uh, Boston Consulting Group. Uh, Spencer, uh, excellent as, as always. My question is one that uh, a lot of people are starting to, starting to turn to, which is we've been talking for a long time about all the growth is really going to be coming from the emerging uh, economies. And you have in your forecast, I can't really tell if you have the peak for OECD happened a few years ago, if it's right around now. Uh, given the huge growth we've had in demand in the United States, uh, big rise in SUVs, even if they are more efficient, what risks do you see in terms of that being wrong? Because, of course, if that doesn't actually flatten out or start to decline, that really upends quite a bit, particularly as it's such a large, still a large amount of, of demand. Hi there, Ben Springer with EDF. Sure. Um, I had two questions. I wanted to dig a little bit further on the carbon pricing um, and talk about how BP sets your own internal carbon price. I believe it's $40 a ton. Um, and understanding that it might not be that difficult, but just give some thought to how you came up with that price internally and how we might think about that outside of BP. And the other question I have is around your assumptions uh, given urbanization trends globally uh, and the energy use in the building sector. I see that your uh, total energy use in the building sector declines by 2035 and just wonder uh, if you can talk a little bit more about the underlying assumptions there. And then in terms of Middle East energy? Sorry, buildings, oh, okay. urbanization and the, the energy use in buildings. Uh, I know that there's a section in here on Africa uh, that you didn't get to touch on, yeah. but... Uh, Given that there's a dramatic growth in urbanization, the energy consumption in buildings uh, in your projection drops. If you can just talk a little bit more about the inputs there. Okay. Um, in some sense, there's a common theme to, to many of those questions, which is what, what, are the, what are you assuming about efficiency, energy efficiency, and, 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 how, and how, what the risks and assumptions around that? And so it's not... It's not quite energy efficiency, but energy intensity, which is the first order we can think of energy efficiency. That's those green bars, which are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so we think the world will be able to produce, to grow at the same rates at the past, but with, with um, energy growing far less quickly. So G global GDP doubles, but energy only grows by 30%. Without improvements in energy efficiency, it would grow one for one. So in, in terms of Jan's question, do we not assume anything about technology? Yeah. Because that's how on earth do I get those in, in massive improvements in, in, in energy intensity? That's made possible by using energy more and more efficiently, which is underpinned by technological improvements. So there's technology um, throughout this uh, uh, document. Um, relates to Jamie's point was, what are the risks? And I'll come back to CCS. Um, what are the risks around that efficiency gains? Um, We're assuming quite a significant break with the past. 
uh, we're making a sig particularly significant is in terms of vehicle efficiency. So in terms of vehicle efficiency, so for oil in relating to oil demand, uh, rough, roughly, roughly, over the last 20 years, the efficiency of the vehicle fleet has improved at around 1% a year. We have it improving at roughly 2.5% a year on average over the next 20 years. That's what gets you that mitigation of oil demand of about 17 million barrels in that, in that chart I showed you. Um, I think that's based on sort of revealed preference about policy how policymakers have used vehicle efficiency standards up to now. That seems a plausible assumption, a best likelihood, otherwise we wouldn't put it in. But I think the risks around that, I think, are likely skewed to less, to a slower growth rate. Anything where you see, I always think anywhere I see a chart for a forecast of a dotted line and there's any sort of point of inflection at the point of the dotted line, I always worry, right? Because you think, well, why, why, why are you so confident the future is going to be different to the past? And in that world, that would say that energy demand and energy efficiency um, uh, and all, uh, energy demand and oil demand will be stronger than we, we think. Most people always assume that if BP is saying something, they're going to tell their best possible um, story. I don't think we are there. As a site, I'm, I'm now deviating. I was doing a TV, a radio interview last week on the BBC, and they said, this abundance of oil, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it was like, it was six o'clock in the morning, I was going, no, I don't think so. I think if I, <laughs> we sell oil. Um, <laughs> Surely the best story for me to say we're running out. You better buy it now, really quickly. <laughs> Telling them the world's washed with oil. But people just often just assume you just talk to your own book. And then, then suddenly go, and you see this guy's going, oh, yeah, OK, OK. And so here, I think, on energy efficiency, we've been pretty optimistic in terms of climate and the energy efficiency use. But I think the risks around that are, are to, the, to the upside. And if you, you're right, in terms of even though the growth is in the emerging markets, in terms of volumes... What's happened in the developed world is, is very significant. So if the U.S. have significantly less improvements in, vehicle, in, in, in efficiency over the next 10 years, that's, that's potentially a big deal in terms of overall energy demand um, going um, forward. Um, in terms of CCS, um, and this relates to carbon pricing, so built into the central case here is carbon price carbon prices get to $40 a, a tonne in, in real terms, and that's what we use for our internal modelling as well. At $40 a tonne, we don't think that's enough to support much uh, CCS, or here we're looking at CCUS, but the same use as well as um, capture. Um, um, and so we don't get much um, carbon capture use and storage uh, in the central case of $40 a tonne. And we don't see, in terms of technology there, we don't see a significant technological breakthrough which will suddenly allow a massive rollout of CCUS um, with the carbon price only at $40 a tonne. In, in those faster transition cases, in terms of when we get carbon prices 100 or above, then CCUS has a big role um, to play. And it seems to me, just from a sort of economic perspective, CCS should play a significant role in any transition to a lower carbon environment. And the nature of the externalities here means there's a market failure. It won't happen without some sort of government support, because that's what the nature of externalities and market failures mean. And so, but that just doesn't seem to be on the agenda at the moment. I understand the politics of why that's not on the agenda, but from economics it seems uh, slightly frustrating that's not um, the case. Um, so how, how do we think about carbon pricing internally? What we try and do is think about what we think is the most plausible case as a way of thinking about that. We're stressed at either side because 
any single point forecast wrong, but that's what we base our, our, our issues on. Um, the urbanisation should lead to improving energy efficiency. That's why we got this sort of break for the past. Just one plug since you helped, since you do it. So I, the one thing I'm conscious over the last few years is we stand up and we and hardly ever talk about Africa and the role that Africa will play and, and why. And the reason why is because over the next 20 years, we expect half of the world's population growth to be in Africa. But we expect Africa to account for less than 10% of the increase in G global GDP and less than 10% of the growth of energy. The corollary of those two things must be because productivity growth in Africa is very poor, and that's what the underlying assumption is. What we then do in, in, in the book is we say, well, what, what could happen between 2035 and 2050, beyond, in that period beyond? The natural view that most people have when thinking about global energy demand, it will continue to decline and, and you just extrapolate it forward. Energy, the growth of energy demand will just get slower and slower as some of that impetus from, um, uh, from China and India starts to wane. And what we show in the outlook is relatively small tweaks to, to, the, to the outlook for Africa is more than enough to arrest that decline in, in, global energy, in the growth of energy demand in that period going forward. So it's just to sort of say don't just think that the growth of global energy demand will just always be extrapolating downwards because even once that, that, that burst of growth from emerging Asia ha, is starting to wane, there's still this enormously important continent which hasn't yet sort of woken up, if you like, in terms of GDP growth and energy demand, which could arrest that. And so we just sort of do some simple numbers to try and think about what that may look like. Huh. Well, that's a, a very interesting last point, which we don't talk a, a lot about. Um, Spencer, I just want to say, I think, you know, living in Washington, we're very focused right now on sort of the here and now of U.S. politics and, and things like that. But what you presented for us today is a view that the energy landscape is pretty darn dynamic uh, and in a whole bunch of different ways and something that we'll be paying attention to and, and really appreciate you bringing this perspective to us to help sort of frame some of our discussions on these big issues.